welcome to the Sanctions Space podcast. I'm Justine Walker, Global Head of Sanctions, Compliance and Risk at ACAMS. Today, we're in a very packed conference here in Vegas. This is our biggest conference. We're sitting in the booth. It's live. People are walking around. Some are listening. What's really exciting is I'm joined today by somebody I've known for a number of years, Melissa Duffy, partner with Fenwick and West. Melissa, welcome to the podcast. Welcome to Vegas. Thank you, Justine. It's terrific to be here. Thank you for having me. And there is a tremendous energy going on all around us. I'm amazed at the awesome turnout for this event. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of thousand people here and we are in the center of Vegas. So that in itself has lots of energy. We're going to talk about export control, strategic trade and really all of what that means. But Actually, I just want to take a little step back because you and I first met, I think around 2015, I was working as an independent advisor to the United Nations, really helping them and governments understand why sanctions were causing such a problem for humanitarian aid and authoring a report which was subsequently leaked and got various headlines across the world. But you came in on that report as a legal expert and did a whole lot of legal analysis for us, which I think was really fundamental and I hope really helped change the dialogue on why the legislative playwork was really difficult to process humanitarian payments. Do you think we managed to create any change? Has it improved? I think so. I think that the regulators in the United States got the message. I think that we've definitely seen them reaching out more to industry and especially to banks to help get them comfortable with processing payments for those types of transactions. I don't think it's always successful. I think banks still tend to be extremely risk averse, but I think that OFAC, the US sanctions regulators, understand that they need to be a little bit proactive in reaching out to the banks now to give them comfort. And I think we've also seen a proliferation of more published guidance by OFAC to industry and to banks explaining what all of these different humanitarian exemptions are and how to use them and really trying to encourage industry to take advantage of this. So I I think we did sort of move the needle a bit with that. Still probably a bit more moving to go, I think we would all accept. But, you know, we like sort of discussing complex issues. Yes. (laughs) And one of the complex issues we're here in Vegas to discuss is really around export controls. And... You and I have been involved in a numerous sort of closed roundtables, open sessions over really many years, but particularly on this subject quite, quite recently. Rapidly evolving expectations in terms of the whole strategic trade field, export controls, dual-use goods, battlefield goods, just how big a deal is this? It's the biggest deal. It's the tip of the spear in the regulator's effort to constrain Russia's war activity and and support for the invasion of Ukraine. It's interesting because we're here at a sanctions and anti-money laundering conference, but I do a lot of my own work and practice in the space of export controls. And here we are talking about the role of goods and software and things that can be provided to Russia to support that effort. And what I'm seeing is really interesting that, first of all, you're seeing the sanctionization of export controls. Export controls are being used a little bit more like a sanctions tool to combat issues with Russia, as well as other places like China. But also the U.S. government and its allies around the world have collectively identified these strategic goods as being essential to 
what's happening right now with Russia and Ukraine. So you're seeing a merging of these efforts across agencies in the U.S. government that used to sort of separate and differentiate AML sanctions and export controls, and they're bringing them all together now to combat what's happening. And I mean, if anybody's under any confusion around just the complexity, I mean, we've just got out a couple of infographics. One of my colleagues led on that, and they sort of set out the HS codes, battlefield goods, all of these things. So people can look at that. But in terms of this changing landscape, how are banks and others pivoting their responses? What types of impact are we really seeing? A huge impact. The U.S. government regulators, I'll speak from the U.S. perspective, I'm assuming this is also happening in other jurisdictions, have really deputized the banks to be their eyes and ears for export transactions relating to Russia and Belarus and to help them spot and intercept attempted evasion or circumvention because a lot of this activity is happening outside the United States. So you don't have U.S. customs and port authorities monitoring shipments and trying to stop shipments going to Russia. This is all happening outside the United States and third countries, and it's really the banks that have the direct visibility to that when they're processing payments. So, you know, in terms of that, just to expand on that a little bit further, what type of visibility are we thinking about here? You and I have talked previously around veteran customers, thinking about download software, where they receive equipment, who subscribes to services, you know, is it that broad, really? Absolutely. Absolutely. Tangible things, goods, shipments, as well as intangibles, um, downloads of software, provision of services. And it's no longer just the traditional things that banks have done to finance trade, like issuing a letter of credit. It's banks stopping and questioning transactions where a company is getting a payment on a commercial transaction. And we're seeing a lot more diligence required by the banks, pulling their customers in, asking their, their clients, asking them to produce documents, tell us what's the export authorization, what's the general license that you're relying on, and uh, you convince us that this is legitimate. And we're seeing a lot of banks just de-risking these transactions and saying, sorry, whether it's legitimate or not, we're just not interested in processing the payment. You know, one of the things we have seen just really recently is the FinCEN. They published an analysis of BSA reports, and that sort of sets out a number of trends and patterns and suspicious activity potentially tied to the evasion of Russia-related export controls. You know, we've both read the report. I think there was a lot to take away from that. But what stood out most to you? That report is a very powerful set of data. There were some strong themes that emerged that I think give industry clear guidelines as to what they need to be looking for. Um, I thought the report did a great job. It summarized, I think it was like 330-some um, SARS reports that had the Russia export control tag. So presumably there's many more that have been filed just for Russia suspicion in general, but these were export control-related transactions that were flagged. And just to give you an idea of some of the themes that the report pulled out, first of all, um, huge focus on third countries surrounding Russia. So not just Belarus, <laughs> but Turkey, the Gulf Coast countries, uh, Central Asia, as well as China. So all of these countries showed up predominantly in these reports. Also, a broad range of strategic goods, not just things that you typically think of as export controlled for dual use reasons, but 
that are controlled for lesser reasons that are industrial. A few other themes that they were seeing and that have come out of this report and discussion around it is looking for companies that have just been incorporated or set up within the past two years in one of these countries that has like little to no web presence and suddenly wants your products, as well as trends, looking at spikes in product sales. You shut down all of your sales to Russia, all of a sudden now you're seeing a spike or a surge in requests for that same good coming out of Turkey. So um, I think all of these themes around the data really were very uh, sharply focused in that report. And you and I were just both in, recently in a meeting where, because in ACAMS we're preparing a sanctions, um, mitigating the risk of sanctions evasion toolkit, to give it its correct name. And we were really looking at just all the factors which, you know, should be taken into that. And I just wonder if we could just, you know, one of the things which really stood out to me was, you know, we had this data set in the US, but we don't really have that everywhere else, do we? You don't have it everywhere else, but the U.S. government, I think, has done a great service of publishing it and getting it out there. And I think it's the same themes. And I think other jurisdictions are looking at those same issues or trends. A lot of these transactions are multi-jurisdictional. So it's not just going to be triggering U.S. jurisdiction. Uh, you could be triggering EU jurisdiction and U.K. jurisdiction in this transaction where your good is transiting multiple countries and you've got different banks and different companies and payments involved. So I think that this report is a good baseline to follow for operations when you're trying to figure out how to mitigate your own risk. You know, I think the other thing too that really came out from this report that I just wanted to flag is, you know, I feel like with export controls in particular, there was like round one, stop sending things to Russia. <laughs> Everything goes on the list. You can no longer sell things to Russia, shut down all of your different channels for things to get into Russia. And I think a lot of companies have really made significant progress in doing that over the past year and a half. Now, I feel like we're in, in wave or round two. It's no longer about direct sales or shipments to Russia. It's all about the circumvention and what's happening in third countries. And I do think that the United States is cooperating with a lot of these third countries, including engagement with Kazakhstan and Turkey and other countries to get more dialogue going to help them spot these things that are transiting through them that the US government is concerned about. You know, and that sort of engagement across the world, I mean, I was in Japan a couple of weeks ago, in, I think actually about 10 days ago, and we were talking about this, and actually a lot of the government officials were, were raising this, and industry were really looking at how do they respond, what should they be doing? So it's a dialogue we're seeing everywhere. And I think one of the things which, you know, and you, you did an alert on this, and, and I've stolen your words about being the eyes and ears, because we are now seeing banks and others becoming the eyes and ears of Russia, sanctions and export control compliance. What is that really going to mean? How much change are we going to really see needing to happen between the different teams and banks and within government and how people think about this topic? I think the change is already happening. I think you're already seeing it, I would say, across our practice. And when I talk with other practitioners, what they're hearing is that companies who invent, make, and ship things are under increased scrutiny from their banks about their Russia transactions. And it's not just U.S. banks. It's international banks that realize maybe they've been hit by a big OFAC penalty. <laughs> they know what that's like. They're not taking any more risks. 
and they might have connections to the United States or maybe they're processing U.S. dollar transactions through correspondent accounts. And so they really are already acting as the eyes and ears outside the United States for OFAC and the Commerce Department on these issues. But here we have a lot of AML sanctions people. And what they're really saying is, just what do we do about export control? A lot of people say, well, tell me what to do. What should they be doing? It is hard because a lot of the financial institutions and other types of companies that hire AML and sanctions compliance specialists usually are financial entities or they, you know, are services or finance. And so they're going to be drawing on people who have those kinds of backgrounds. All of a sudden, people in banks and their compliance departments are having to navigate export controls. And previously, they've never really dug into that. They've always trusted the companies to make affirmations and statements to say, yeah, we're acting in compliance. We've got our licenses. We know what we're doing. So I would say, having been on the receiving end, working with a lot of companies who are getting these kinds of questions, is just to keep reaching out, asking questions of the clients that you're supporting who are in this industry. You know, I think sometimes there could be a little bit of a knee-jerk reaction just to reject something and say, we're not going to do it. And uh, I think just to reach out, ask questions, they show us documents, to be willing to get councils to talk to each other. A lot of times the companies can get their export control council on the phone with the bank's sanctions person, and they can sort of make the two ends meet. So, you know, whilst I have you here in the booth, Melissa, I just also want to ask you a little bit about the HS code. Export control, strategic trade, is very broad. It covers a whole range of things, but we have seen this prioritization of HS codes. Yeah. For the people listening who don't really understand that, what really are they? What, 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 what are people be thinking about? Sure. For, okay, so for all of you sanctions and AML people who have never done customs or export controls before, <laughs> typically in the world of what we call dual-use goods, things that are more sensitive and that have strategic value, so dual meaning like they could be used for military as well as civilian purposes, those items are usually on a control list and they have this export control classification number. But with Russia and Belarus, the U.S. government, as well as its allies around the world, have been putting restrictions on things that are not normally considered dual use, that are not normally considered strategic or sensitive. Ordinary industrial goods, ordinary household goods, luxury goods, consumer goods. So the best way to define these things is according to their customs code, because everything has a customs code to get what's being imported and tracked for statistics. So these items are identified by their customs code. All the countries have gotten together and harmonized their customs code at a certain level. So, you know, customs codes in the United States are 10 digits, and so everything's supposed to be harmonized at the six-digit level. And this is really great because it means that the UK on their list of restricted industrial items and the EU and other jurisdictions in the U.S. are all generally supposed to be having the same HS codes and the same types of products. So that's what that means um, if it's a restricted item. So if you're a bank and you see something going to Russia and you're not sure about it, you can ask for the HS code. You can ask the customer, you know, tell us why you think this is not restricted or whether it's on the list or not. And of course, the prioritization of the HS codes. We have a couple of different lists out there. Yes. Um, don't we? we have the U.S. list, then we have the U.K. and the EU list. How harmonized are they? 
would say mostly, but not entirely. And so you have to be alert. And if you're a multinational company, you have to be checking multiple lists. Or if you are a bank providing financing or processing a payment for a multi-jurisdictional transaction, you might have to check multiple lists. But um, we're finding that they are mostly harmonized, but there's enough differentiation between the descriptions or even just the listing in and of itself that you really have to be careful. So, you know, this is the field that you're an expert in. And, you know, as we just bring this to a conclusion, because we're going to let people go back into their sessions here at Vegas, if we just look to what we think may happen in the next six months to 12 months around export controls, what would you be thinking? What would you be saying to industry they need to prioritize? Or, you know, will we just see huge displacement? Will we see a real different supply chain? What can we expect? We can expect regulators to devote increased resources and focus on diversion and circumvention. Right now, most things are restricted for Russia at this point. Um, If you're talking about things that are commercial or industrial. And so it's going to be hard for the U.S. government to go out and find significant new chunks of goods to control short of going to a full-on embargo. And so assuming that the government doesn't go there yet then really the focus is going to be on enforcing what rules they do have. So I think that for companies, it's going to mean putting a lot more effort into controls and systems that are meant to spot red flags and diversion risks. Looking at your data, zooming out, looking for spikes, looking for unusual trends. And we're going to see the government using banks and their suspicious activity reports as a source of information about that. Melissa, thank you so much for your insights. Fairly clear that strategic trade, export controls is climbing up the regulatory agenda. But us here in ACAMS, we're really focused on this topic. You know, we've got the infographics out, we've got a, the sanctions evasion papers coming out, mitigating the risk of sanctions evasion toolkit, and we'll be heading a lot of public-private dialogue. So I think we're all learning as we go along on how to respond to this. So, you know, what I would say to listeners is thanks very much for joining us here today. Please do sign up to hear the stories behind sanctions. And Melissa, again, you're just such a great partner. It was a full range of topics. Thanks so much. Thanks for inviting me, Justine. It's great to be here.